All right, please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, which would be a good introduction to Psalm 49. Your immense fellowship recently, you'll recognize this. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on his word in particular. Our Father in heaven, please bless us now as we read the scriptures. Help us to understand what they mean, and um, please help us to uh, delight in your word and um, incline our hearts towards your testimonies, as the psalmist says. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 12, beginning at verse uh, 13. It's 13 to 21, not 31 to 21, obviously. 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops." And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen. Let's now turn to Psalm 49. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, O all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations though they called lands by their own names. Man, in his pomp, will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. 
Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, what do uh, Bill Monroe, John Bon Jovi, NPR, and the ancient Stoics have in common? See if you can connect those dots. And uh, the answer is probably not very much, (laughs) but um, there is something I want to share with you tonight. So let's start with the ancient Stoics. Ancient Stoics, they were a group of philosophers in ancient Rome. Uh, and Greece as well, who were known for a concept called memento mori, memento mori, which in Latin uh, means remember dying, or more loosely, remember death. Um, So remembering that one day you will die, it was thought, uh, was important for living now um, a life well lived. Well, the other day, uh, NPR happened to be on the radio, and uh, during a transition between spots, I guess, they, they played um, a, a clip from a song uh, by a band called The Flaming Lips. Um, not, not a band name that I expect something very profound from, but it, it, it got my attention because the line was, do you realize that everyone you know someday will die? Do you realize that everyone you know someday will die? And I heard that and I thought, memento mori. Probably not many people hearing that thought that, but that's just the way my brain worked. Um, Well, I mentioned Bon Jovi uh, because of his song uh, where that great poet um, said, it's my life, it's now or never, but I ain't going to live forever. Once again, there it is. It's memento mori. He's remembering death. And that, of course, is shaping the way he wants to live his life. Um, Now, Bon Jovi's answer to uh, that uh, whole concept in that song, I would say, leaves something to be desired, though. He gives what you might call the existentialist answer uh, to that reality of death that confronts us all. Uh, The answer is basically just live for the moment. Just be yourself. Stand your ground. He says, do it your way. There's that line, like Frankie said, speaking of Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, all this kind of thing. Uh, Because in the end, I just want to live while I'm alive. Now, the point here is that just remembering death, just that memento mori all by itself, just remembering that one day you and everyone you know will die, um, that will not necessarily get you to a life well lived. It's important, 
It's indispensable for living wisely, but it's not enough to get you to a well-lived life. And so I wonder whether uh, John, uh, John Bon Jovi or anyone from the Flaming Lips ever uh, listened to their uh, good diet of bluegrass music and heard Bill Monroe and his brother Charlie singing, Brother, afar from the Savior today, risking your soul for the things that decay. Oh, if today... God should call you away. What would you give in exchange for your soul? Psalm 49 is another song, much more ancient one and an inspired one, in which the Holy Spirit is bringing us here face to face with the reality of death and asking the question, What does it look like to live wisely when you and everyone you know one day will die? But the answer that it gives, of course, is not the answer of the ancient Stoics, and it's not the answer that you'll find in uh, most popular music. Certainly not the answer that you'll get from National Public Radio. Uh, But before I tell you what the answer is from this psalm, let me give you our three points for tonight, which are going to be, first, the great leveler. It's verses 1 through 9. Second, the biggest loser, verses 10 to 14. And third, a living hope, verses 15 to 20. So the great leveler, the biggest loser, and a living hope. All right, the first four verses are kind of an introduction, setting the stage for what kind of psalm this is going to be. Um, People group the psalms into different categories, right? So you have psalms of praise, you have psalms of lament. Uh, you have penitential psalms, psalms where the psalms confessing sin, um, imprecatory psalms, these kinds of things. Well, this psalm fits very firmly in the category of what we call wisdom psalms. Wisdom psalms are psalms that share a lot of characteristics with the books of well, Proverbs, especially, but also Ecclesiastes. Uh, also, even Job and the Song of Solomon, those wisdom books of the Old Testament. There are also wisdom psalms, and this is one of them. Uh, and in verses 1 and 2, you can see that this psalm is going to address something that is of universal importance. And that's something that connects it, uh, by the way, with some of the previous couple psalms. We've talked about uh, how those psalms have addressed the, the nations, all peoples, uh, like Psalm 47, clap your hands, all peoples. Um, once again, here's Psalm 49, hear this, all peoples. All people everywhere, and um, one of the reasons for that is that it's addressing something that is a common, universal human experience, which is the reality of death. So it begins, Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. So all all kinds of people, too, all walks of life. Uh, Verses 3 and 4, then, um, assert that the psalmist is about to share some wisdom. Wisdom uh, in the Old Testament, kind of in that thought world, has been defined as um, skill for living by some. Um, Skill for living in a way particularly that's consistent with the way the world really is as it's created and governed by the Lord. Um, Wisdom perceives the real truth about things. 
But it doesn't just perceive the truth. It's knowledge and, and maybe understanding. But wisdom goes a step further and, and, and tries to answer the question, well, how then shall we live given that truth? How can we build the skill of navigating the real world in a way that is consistent with God's design um, and that is not against the grain of God's design? And so it has to do with keeping God's law, yes, but also applying God's law skillfully to the complexities of the life that we actually go out and live. And so verses 3 and 4 say that that's what this psalm is going to be about. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my Riddle, and that's an interesting term to use because it's showing that that pursuit of skill for living is not necessarily easy. It can be difficult, and we need to give careful attention to it and not be flippant or dismissive about these ultimate questions of life. Well, verse 5 then introduces um, the main theme of the psalm after that extended introduction. When he asks the question, Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. So the psalmist is living in a world um, that really is not so different from ours. We like to think, oh, you know, the, uh, the world we live in is wildly different from ancient civilization because of, and, and obviously there are huge advances in technology and differences in culture. And so there are a lot of things that separate us from the ancient world. And yet, As they say, the more things change, the more things stay the same. And the description that he gives of wealthy and influential people wielding an enormous amount of power over others is is very current. It's timeless, something that's always true in every generation, no matter how technology and culture change. And while maybe we would like, ideally, to live in a world where the people who have the most wealth and power are also the most virtuous people, the most godly people, uh, who are going to use that wealth and power for good, um, generation after generation down through the centuries, so often uh, that's just not the way it usually turns out. Because after all, uh, power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts as absolutely as it's been said, um, not because the, the wealth of the power itself has the power to corrupt our hearts. Rather, it gives free reign to the corruption that is within us. It gives us the ability to do things that other people can't do with the same evil that's within that we all share. And so that has a lot to do with this phenomenon and why it's true in every generation. Now, there are a few um, possible ways that we might react to this reality that there are, uh, uh, there's iniquity of people who, who cheat us, who are trusting in their wealth and boasting in the abundance of their riches. That's a given. But how are we going to live in response to that? Um, One response would be the response of envy and ambition. Um, To make it our goal to get as close to that status as we can. It's thinking, well, if only I could be in that position of wealth uh, and and power and financial security and influence over other people... uh, uh, well, I, then, then I would use it for good, maybe. I've, if only I could accumulate as much as I can. If only I could get as much influence as I can. Uh, it's kind of the idea of wanting to fight fire with fire. 
Um, of course, when we do that, we are really buying in to the illusion that what really counts as winning in life is how much you have and how many other people you can control and how completely you can control them with it. But there is another response. That's the response of envy and ambition and accumulation. The other response seems very different. It appears as the opposite, but it's really, I would argue, the flip side of the coin, the same coin. And that is the response of fear. The response of fear. We, are, we can be gripped by this uneasiness, this apprehension, um, this anxiety of looking around at the dangers of life and looking at the way that the world is with these kinds of people out there and thinking, well, just look at them. Look at what they can get away with. Look at the influence that they have over my daily life that I really can't help it. I, I have no control of it. Look how untouchable they seem to be when it comes to any kind of real justice and accountability. Imagine what they could do to me and, uh, and to the people that I love with all of that influence. But you see, that response of fear is really the same, based on the same uh, error as the first one. Because once again, we're buying into that same illusion. The illusion that what really counts as winning in life is how much you have and how much, how many people you can control with it. We've just, in this case, resigned ourselves to being the losers in that same calculus. But we're still participating in that worldview when we respond with fear. Why should I fear in times of trouble? That's what the psalmist asks. Why should I? The answer, this rhetorical question, of course, where the answer is, well, you shouldn't be afraid, and why not? Well, the answer he gives for, the reason he gives why he should not be afraid is the inevitability of death. It's the inevitability of death. Death, after all, puts a hard limit on the wealth and the power and the influence of any individual in this life, and that is why death has been described as the great leveler. And that's why it's significant in verse 2 that the psalm addresses, remember, both low and high, rich and poor together. Death levels us all. Put this on the same plane because it affects us all equally. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 7, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. No amount of money, no amount of power can fend off that ultimate end uh, to all of a person's accumulated wealth and influence when they leave it all behind. It's just, it's gone in a moment. No more access to it. You're completely cut off from it. Um, and that's true in a way that maybe is not true of, say, sickness. So you could say, well, rich people have access to better health care than poor people, and so um, maybe there's, there's a difference where it makes a real difference to be able to stave off death maybe for a little while. But in the end, we all, our bodies all end up in the same place, the grave. Death is the great leveler. It's interesting, um, by the way, the way the way that some, the rich and powerful today, 
are uh, getting very interested in the whole notion of transhumanism. I don't know if you've ever read about this, but the, this whole idea of wanting to upload their, con- their consciousness into a computer so that their consciousness can outlive their bodies. Or either that or the other version of this is wanting to uh, cryo-freeze their bodies right after death or right before they die uh, so that you know over hundreds of years the technology will progress until they can be immortal and then they'll like get unfrozen and wake up again. And you can see the absurdity of this. They'll, they'll pour huge amounts of their wealth and power into those pursuits, um, which really just underlines the absurdity of it all. These are moves really of desperation, not to say despair, because the psalm told us, tells us uh, long ago, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Jesus asks in Matthew 16, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And then he goes on, Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It may be that Jesus had this psalm in mind when he said that. Especially remember that in Hebrew, the the word for soul and life, nephesh, one word means both things, soul and life. Talking about the life force of a person. Um, he's saying there's, there is no ransom that you can pay to preserve your life indefinitely. There are some things that money can't buy. It's definitely one of them. Eternal life. Immortality. Many people have tried and failed. And this brings us to the second point, which is the biggest loser. If it's true, step one, that money and power will not stave off death forever. Well then, step two, what could be more foolish than to invest yourself completely in those things, in money and power, in this life? Verse 10, even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Uh, This is a big theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, It's also... Part of the point that Jesus is making um, about the rich farmer in Luke 12, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Not the farmer's. You're going to pass on to somebody else. It's all going to pass on uh, to to another person, and, and, and that farmer is going to enter the rest of eternity as poor as he came into the world. Remember, you brought nothing into the world and you can take nothing out of it on the other side. Um, The psalm goes on, their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they call lands by their own names. I I think that last phrase is interesting. You can see this even today. Some people try to deal with the the problem of their own mortality by um, getting things named after them. By, or, or more generally, by living in this life so that people will remember them after they've died. Okay? If people remember me, if they still talk about me after I've died, then at least my name will live on. At least the organizations that I founded or endowed 
or the parks that were named after me, or the statues and the portraits that they'll keep in museums and people will look and say, what a great man that was. But you can see that's another move of desperation or even despair because what kind of hope is that really for you? Knowing that your name one day will be remembered might be nice to think about in this life, but, but after the grave, what good does it do you? When your forever home is in the tomb. So do you any good at all? Verse 12 puts it very bluntly. You know, we don't like to talk about death. People like to avoid it. And not, uh, not really come to terms with it. Uh, the Bible doesn't treat death that way. It's very direct. And it doesn't let us hide behind the facade of... Um, cleaned up versions of dealing with death that are common today. Verse 12 simply says, man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. What's the real difference between an animal corpse and a human corpse? Now, there, there are differences we could talk about, especially because the image of God uh, is not just imprinted on our souls, but on our bodies as well. And yet you can see the analogy that's being made here. Think about the animal corpse and the human corpse. Neither one can speak. Neither one can think. Neither one can hear. Neither one can own property. Neither one can spend money. Neither one can write a book. Of course, in life, there was a great difference between those two. But in death, all of those things are true of both of them. And so the point from all of this is that it's the ultimate folly. The ultimate folly. What could be more foolish than to put all of your eggs in the basket of this life into the things and the influence that are going to vanish in an instant just a few decades away when you pass into eternity? The biggest loser, so to speak, is the one who has everything in this life but nothing for the rest of eternity. Um, it's kind of the flip. It's kind of the inverse of that famous Jim Elliot quote: "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." So the flip side of that is that the greatest folly then is to ignore the eternal things that cannot be lost in order to devote yourself to gaining things that you are guaranteed to lose. You cannot help losing. It is one hundred percent sure that you will lose. In the end, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence, verse 13. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. And this is something you have to realize that popular opinion, kind of the conventional wisdom, the way most people go about their lives, and the way most people think about past uh, people, either people who have recently died, famous maybe celebrities who have recently died, or great men of history, none of this is a reliable guide uh, for us. History looks back and tells you how magnificent historical figures were during their lives, but it doesn't typically talk about their current status, right? What they're experiencing right now as we speak in either heaven or hell. This psalm, though, is like an x-ray. It lets us see inside the grave, beyond the grave in time. Like sheep, verse 14, they are appointed for Sheol, or that means the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. 
Okay, so let's, let's suppose that this psalm has convinced us uh, not to be quite so impressed as maybe we were with wealthy and powerful people who seem to be kind of on top of the dog pile of life. And let's uh, suppose that it's taught us to be neither envious of them nor afraid of them. But we also need to realize that if we stopped at verse 14, this would not be a very hopeful psalm. It would leave us the same place as maybe the Stoics or maybe even the same place as Bon Jovi or the Flaming Lips. It would be a psalm of despair. Because it's even said that what applies to the wealthy and powerful wicked is also true of the poor and beleaguered righteous. Everybody's going to die. In fact, I think that's a big reason why people throw themselves into pursuing the uh, kind of good things of this life. Um, it's because they, they don't think or they don't want to think um, that it makes any difference after death how we live. And so if this world is all there is, if this world is all there is, then this is all the time that we have to make the most of it. This is the only time we have to get as much happiness as possible. And that's where you get the Bon Jovi philosophy. It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I'm going to live. I just want to live while I'm alive, like, like Frank Sinatra. I'm going to do it my way. And so, like I said at the beginning, remembering death is not enough to get to a life well lived. It's only enough to get you to that sort of YOLO mentality of just living for the moment because this is, this is your best shot. But, of course, that is not where this psalm does leave us. This psalm does not end at verse 14. In fact, the crux, the real turning point and great, hopeful, bright, shining moment of this psalm is verse 15, which begins, but God. And this is, uh, Derek Kidner points this out in his commentary. It stands in the rich uh, series of but God statements in the Bible where the conventional wisdom is blown to bits and the world is turned upside down when we suddenly remember the Lord, remember Him as our Creator, remember Him as our Redeemer, and we see how the reality of the transcendence of God and um, His Lordship and sovereignty over us and all that we are and all of our lives, how it completely turns inside out the way that the world would look at things and shows us the true wisdom, the true skill for living consistent with the reality of the way things really are. The way things really are. But God. And so we come to our third point tonight, which is a living hope. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me. The hope of a person who's trusting in God is not just um, that the people currently on top of the dog pile will one day be brought down to my level by death, the great level, or at least, at least we'll all be at the bottom together. That would be kind of a lame hope. Just wanting to tear others down. Um, no, the psalmist is looking forward instead to a great reversal. 
a great reversal. He hasn't just resigned himself to the inevitability of death for everybody. His is a hope in death, a hope through death, a hope in the face of death that the Lord is going to ransom him and receive him in such a way that Sheol, or the grave, will not have the last word. That opens the question, though, how will God do this? This is the second, this is the second time the idea of ransom has come up in this psalm, isn't it? Um, you go back to verse 7, where he says, Truly no man can ransom another, or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Now the idea of ransom comes up again. Now he's saying that what you cannot do for yourself, no man can offer a ransom for another, and no man can pay the ransom for himself. But what you cannot do for yourself, and what you cannot do for anybody else, God can do for you and has done for this godly man. God is going to ransom my soul from the power of the grave. And so the psalm is teaching us to look forward to God's plan for ransoming those destined for death from the power of death, not through anything that they could do for themselves, but by grace alone. You understand? You cannot do this for yourself. You cannot ransom your own life. You cannot ransom anyone else's life. But who can ransom you? It's the Lord who can ransom you by his grace alone. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly what God has done for us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ who said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ's life was that ransom paid to deliver us from the power of Sheol, of the grave. Yes, it's true that no mere man can ransom another man. But you see, Christ was not merely man. He was God. In fact, this is one of the reasons when we talk about why did Jesus need to be God and man. He needed to be man so that he could bear the punishment for our sin, the punishment of death and suffering. But it's also true, as Psalm 49 tells us, that a mere man cannot ransom the life of another man, that sacrifice is not of sufficient value. But Christ was also God mystery of the incarnation, of that union between those two natures. And so his sacrifice, therefore, was of surpassing value, able to pay the price for all of the sins of all of his people, able to give us, all, all of his people, a hope beyond death, a hope that for us this world is not all there is to look forward to, this is not as good as it gets for the people of God. And to take it one step further, the resurrection of Christ, when Christ himself had his life ransomed by the Father from the power of Sheol, from the power of the grave, when God the Father received him, 
as this psalm says, received him back from death through the power of the Spirit after he had given up everything, all that he had, even the very clothes off his back that the soldiers cast lots for. He died without them too. And yet after that, the Father received him back from death. And that shows, that resurrection of Christ shows that the future hope we're living for is not just to be kind of disembodied spirits floating around, souls all by themselves in heaven forever. It points us to the resurrection hope that's more fully described in the New Testament, the hope of a new heavens and a new earth and of renewed resurrection bodies where we will live together, body and soul reunited for eternity in the presence of Christ, sharing in all of his riches and in all of his kingly power over all things for eternity. And so it's in Christ, therefore, with that end time reality in view. It's in him that the command makes sense. Not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but to lay up for yourselves instead treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, unlike Bon Jovi, I'm sorry I keep picking on him, but unlike the message of that particular song, I don't, I don't just want to live while I'm alive. I don't. It's not just while I'm alive that I want to live. No, and sorry to keep bringing up bluegrass, but there's another gospel song I love that puts it like this. I want to live beyond the grave. I want to live beyond the grave. And related to that, I want to live now setting my sights beyond the grave, aiming beyond the end to the ultimate end that comes after when we're trying to figure out how to live wisely with the time that we have in this life. We need to be setting our sights beyond death, not thinking this world is all there is. I want to be living for the things that really last when everything that I see around me has passed away, except for the people with eternal souls to my left and right and that I interact with every day. What that means for us is not neither envying and imitating the great masters of wealth and power of our day, thinking if only we could have what they have, if only we could do the things that, we, that, that they can do, then we would finally be happy and secure. It also means not being afraid and anxious and bitter and embattled when we think about those same people. Because we have to realize that nobody in this life, no matter how wealthy or powerful, can ultimately touch us. They cannot lay a finger upon those uh, final things that we stand to inherit in Christ. Because, why? Because we are not our own. We belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We belong to the owner and the ruler of all things. And we're going to reign with him forever. Because he has bought us at the cost of his own blood. It's good news for the people of God, and it should keep us both from envy and from fear. So, so be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, remember, 
He will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perishes. The end of the psalm reviews what's already been said. But don't let that be you. Don't let that be you, that man in his pomp without understanding. This psalm is calling you to understand. It is teaching you wisdom. It is calling you to listen. It's calling you to understand and to live with these realities in the foreground of your vision. As it teaches you to set your sights beyond the grave. As it teaches you to put your confidence in the Christ who has ransomed you from the grave. And that's how you will learn not just to remember death. Not just memento mori, but it'll teach you what to do with that knowledge. It'll teach you to live wisely with godly skill in this world that is passing away, but that is also giving way before long to a world to come. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the honesty and frankness of your word, the way that it keeps us from hiding from the hard realities of life and death. Lord, we thank you that it does not just shock us with those realities and leave us without hope, but it points us to Christ. Christ who has overcome death, who through death has defeated the one who holds the power of death and delivered those who once were enslaved to him from their lifelong slavery. So, Lord, we ask that in Christ you would free us both from envy and from fear. We pray that in him you would help us to live with courage and conviction with our sights set beyond death to the hope that you have given to us in Christ in the new heavens and the new earth and help us to live as citizens of that kingdom in the life you've called us to lead here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.